Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. I suppose it would be fair for some people to maybe question me this morning and say, Pastor David, why are you even teaching on this passage of Scripture this morning? Because I read in my Bible that this section, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, that might not even really belong in our Bibles. Maybe your Bible has a little asterisk or a footnote or something indicating something special about this text. Let me read you what I have in my Bible. It's a footnote here. It says, uh, a footnote at the beginning of verse 9, where it says, uh, verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in NU texts as not original. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. And you read that and you go, well, now wait a minute here. Has somebody been playing fast and loose with my Bible? And is there some passage in here, are there some words in here that just really don't belong? Well, let me say no. I believe that this is an important passage and an accurate passage given to us in our Bibles. But I do understand why, among some Bible researchers, that there's some debate about this. Because there are a few prominent manuscripts of the New Testament dating about, oh, 250 or 275 years after Mark would have wrote his gospel, that do not contain this passage. Scholars will also tell you that there's sort of a difficult grammatical construction or a transition, I should say, between the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. You don't really pick up on it in the English translation, but they say if you're reading it in this ancient Greek language that the New Testament was written in, you can see that the grammar is kind of awkward, and they have different reasons for believing that perhaps this passage of Scripture doesn't really belong in here, that Mark didn't really write it. Some people would say that somebody else added this in a long time later. Well, I don't believe that. And let me let you have a few reasons why I don't believe it. First of all, it's very difficult for me to believe that Mark intended his gospel to end at the end of verse 8. Let me read verse 8 to you, and you tell me if it seems to you that this is where Mark wanted his gospel to end. And they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That just doesn't hit me as right. Now, again, I just don't have the feel from the rest of the Gospel of Mark. That's how Mark would have wanted the Gospel to end. Another thing is when you go back to the writings of the earliest Christians, long before those questionable manuscripts that don't include this passage, When you go back to people who wrote 200 years before the time of those questionable manuscripts, you will find that they quote from this last section of the Gospel of Mark. Did you know that even if you wiped out all the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, that you could reconstruct almost every verse of the New Testament from the writings of ancient Christians? Because when they wrote, they quoted the New Testament. And so you take a quote here, and a quote there, and a quote there, and another place. Well, there are people very soon in some of the very earliest Christian writings that we exist, that we have, they quote from this last passage of the Gospel of Mark. Now, they were getting it from someplace. 
they said Mark wrote this in his gospel, and it is true that Mark wrote it in his gospel, and there it is. So let me just put it to you this way, without going into too many of the technical issues and such behind this. The earliest testimony that we presently have, <coughs> excuse me, from, from different writers uh, in the early church, the earliest testimony that we presently have argues that the earliest Christians took this passage as genuine. And so I take it as well. Now, some people wonder if there wasn't some early problem with the text or maybe a torn manuscript, and all those things may be possible. But the bottom line is I think that the Holy Spirit has something important to say to us in this last passage of the Gospel of Mark. So let's take another look at it here, verses 9 through 11, where we read, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And as they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Now, look at the condition of the disciples before they knew Jesus rose from the dead. What's their condition? Verse 10 describes it. They mourned and wept. That's what it was like. There they are all sitting around a table. They're mourning, weeping. Jesus is dead. He's gone. We have no hope. This man that we put all our lives in, all our our fortune, all our hope in, he's gone. And hope is gone with him. And now who knows when the Romans aren't going to come after us as well. And you can see what a dark and depressing thing it was. But then the ladies come, Mary Magdalene. She had seen the risen Lord. And by the way, John chapter 20 describes this wonderful occasion where Mary Magdalene had this face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And at first she didn't know who it was. She thought that maybe he was the gardener. You know, maybe she's looking through those tear-stained eyes, and she can barely make the guy out. And, and finally, he says, Mary. All he has to do is say her name. And, and Mary knew that only one person ever called her by her name in that way. And she knew it was Jesus. And she cried out, Rabboni, which means my teacher. And then she grabbed onto him and held onto him so tight that Jesus had to say, hey, Mary. I'll paraphrase. He said, lighten up. I've got to go back to my father in heaven. You know, you can't hold me down here on earth forever. And she probably felt, oh, I lost you once. I'm never going to let you go again. Never, never. Well, she's so excited after this dramatic encounter with the risen Lord Jesus that she runs back and she tells the disciples, he's risen, he's risen. They're there. They're all mourning and weeping. They're all depressed, as depressed as anybody can be. Everything's been taken away from them. Everything they love. Talk about loss. Talk about deprivation. Talk about grief. They have it all there. Mary comes with the best news. He's risen. He's alive. I heard the angel talk about it. I saw the empty tomb, and then I saw Jesus for myself. I held on to him, and he talked to me, and I talked to him. He's risen. I know it. And they said, nah Look at it right there, verse 11. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. That's not bad enough. Look at verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Oh, now again, Mark's just alluding to something that's in another gospel. The gospel of Luke tells us about this occasion. Luke chapter 24, it tells about this occasion when Jesus was, after his resurrection, talking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And there they were, just walking along. And and the two disciples are really depressed. They're saying, well, you know, we don't know. Jesus is gone and everything's lost and he's dead. We've heard maybe his body's missing, but we don't know what's going on. And Jesus starts kind of playing along with them. He goes, 
Why, what are you guys talking about? Explain to me. And they answer back to Jesus and they go, boy, you're out of it, aren't you? You don't read the newspapers or anything. Are you the only guy in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what's been going on? And they tell him about Jesus and the crucifixion and all this. And of course, Jesus says, yeah, I, you bet I know. I, I was there for the whole thing. And then he's, he's thinking about it all. And then the Bible says that Jesus began to explain to them from the scriptures everything that this Old Testament says about the Messiah. Oh, that would have been a Bible study to get a hold of. That'd be an all-time best-selling tape in any tape ministry. Jesus going from Genesis to Malachi, talking about how the Old Testament preaches Christ and puts forth the Messiah. What a spectacular time. And Jesus taught him that study. And they still didn't know it was him until they sat down to break bread together. And something about the way Jesus broke bread, or some people think they saw the nail prints in his hands or whatever it was, they knew it was Jesus. And as soon as they knew it was Jesus, he vanished from them. And those disciples were so excited, they ran back and they told them all, look at it, it's right here in verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And when they went and told him to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Well, at least I'd say this, that the, the, uh, the, the disciples were not sexist. It's not like they would believe men and, and not believe women. They, they were equal opportunity unbelievers. It didn't matter who told them. Women or men or one or two or three, it just didn't matter. They were stuck in their unbelief and they would not believe. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's your attitude. It doesn't matter who tells you about the risen Jesus. It doesn't matter who tells you about the work that Jesus did on the cross. You're not going to believe it. Maybe your attitude is, I'm not going to believe it until I experience it for myself. The risen Jesus is going to have to meet me before I believe it. Okay? And why don't you tell him that? Why don't you make it a prayer of yours this morning? Why not right now? I'm talking. You're not talking. You can talk silently in your heart to God. And you can say to God right now, Jesus, if you're real, if you're who this book says you are, then show me. I open up my heart for you to show me. Go ahead. If you are who you say you are, if you are who this book reveals you to be, then I'll follow you. I'll be your disciple. If you're not, then I want to know now. So show me. Now, what do you got to lose when you give Jesus an invitation like that? I mean, if Jesus isn't who the Bible says he is, if he's just some great man from history, if it's like praying to Abraham Lincoln to pray to Jesus, you know, if there's no difference there, then what have you lost? But if he is who the Bible says he is, if this book is true and real, then friends, your life will be opened up to the most marvelous truth in the world. So why not pray that prayer? What are you, are you chicken? <laughs> I mean, what have you got to lose? So pray that prayer. Now, maybe that's where your heart is, but I will say this. If that's where your heart is, we say it doesn't matter what anybody tells me about Jesus. It doesn't matter what the eyewitnesses tell me. It doesn't matter what the people who've had a personal encounter with him. It doesn't matter. I have to experience it myself. Jesus will meet you because he's kind and loving. And he'll, he'll condescend to that. But I think you're cheating yourself. Because look at what Jesus said to the disciples when he met them. Verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. 
You see, these disciples saying, oh, we're not going to believe it until we see it. The women tell us we don't believe it. The, the disciples on the road to Emmaus told us we don't believe it. And Jesus comes and says, now do you believe it? I'm right here in your midst. Well, they said, well, yes, we believe it now, Jesus. And he said, you should have believed it before when you were given reliable testimony of it. Friends, there's a lot in life that we simply have to take on reliable testimony. And if you're going to say in your heart that you're not going to believe something until you experience it for yourself, then just be consistent and apply that principle to everything in your life. For example, I've never been to Orlando, Florida. Now I'd like to go. I'd like to take the whole family there. It sounds like a fun place. Disney World, Epcot Center, all those different things that they have. That sounds like a great place. But I'll tell you something. I've never been there. So maybe there isn't really in Orlando, Florida. You know, maybe map makers are in some big conspiracy. Maybe it's all just trick photography and it's just different shots of Disneyland and they just say it's Walt Disney World. Maybe all those people who told me about their personal visit to, to Orlando, Florida, Walt Disney World, maybe they're just making it up. And it's just part of a vast conspiracy. And I won't believe it at all until I see it with my own eyes and experience it myself. Well, fine, I could have that attitude. But it's pretty dumb, don't you think? I mean, we should be able to accept things on reliable eyewitness and earwitness testimony. And that's exactly what we have in the pages of the scriptures. And Jesus said, you're costing yourself something. He had to rebuke the disciples for their unbelief. So friends, please, remember this. When Jesus met the disciples and rebuked their unbelief, they were the losers because of it. Even though the women and the men on the road to Emmaus came and they they told them that Jesus was risen, the disciples didn't believe, but Jesus had to rebuke their unbelief. Well, he didn't dwell, I think, too much on the rebuke because there was work to be done. It wasn't about berating the disciples. It was about accomplishing something. And that's where we come to verse 15, where we read, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Friends, I want you to notice something. That in verse 15, when Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he says the same thing to us today. That wasn't a command just for the 11 that Jesus spoke to on that day at that time. It's a command for every one of us to grab a hold of. And might I say that it's a command. Oh, I've researched this statement in the original ancient Greek language that it was written in. I've looked at it in different translations. I've looked at it uh, in a mirror backwards to see if there's some hidden meaning in it. Friends, you can look at it one way or another and you'll just come to find that it's not a suggestion at all. It's a command. And the command is something that we must fulfill. You know, let's say that the Christian life is like a college. And here we are. We're all enrolled in the college of Christianity. And Jesus Christ, as you know, the headmaster of the college, he's the president. Great. We're all here at the College of Christianity. Some of us think that evangelism 
and missions are electives at this college. Now you could take them or not take them. Oh, I'd rather take basket weaving. You know, I'd rather take this, or that, or the other thing. And, you know, if you want to, you can take the elective of Mark 16, 15. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, friends. It's not an elective course. It's a required course. Might I say that it's a major for every Christian. Oh, sure, we may have double majors. You major in this, but you also major in this. The idea is that this is a responsibility for every Christian to have this faith, to have this heart that goes into all the world. And why do we do it? Simply because we were commanded to do it. There was an army chaplain who once came up to this great military man, the Duke of Wellington. He's the guy who defeated Napoleon on the fields of battle in, in Europe. And so this army chaplain was thinking about conducting a missionary endeavor in India. And so he asked the Duke of Wellington, because he was wise about great projects and such, and he said, do you think it's of any use our taking the gospel to the hill tribes in India? Do you think they will receive it? The Duke of Wellington looked at him. He was a stern military man. And he looked and he answered and he just said one thing. He said, what are your marching orders? What are you doing even considering? Will they receive it? Is it going to be hard? That's not the issue. If you're a military man, you have one issue, and it's, what are your marching orders? What's your commander tell you to do? If this is what he tells you to do, then you do it. Well, that needs to be the heart that we have. Notice what he says. Verse 15, go into all the world. That means go out. Go out from this building. God forbid if this is the only place where the gospel is preached in our lives. Oh, it should be preached outside of this building. It says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You say, oh, well, good. I'm glad he said that because that means I'm off the hook. You see, because the preacher is up on the platform right now. I'm not a preacher. So I don't need to do that. Well, no, you see, you're missing the point here. Do you know what that word preach means? It doesn't mean deliver a 35-minute message on Sunday morning. That's not what the word preach means. Now, that's one way to fulfill it, but it's only one of maybe a dozen or 20 or 50 different ways. Preach simply means to proclaim. So when you tell somebody about something good that Jesus did in your life, you're preaching. When you give somebody a tract Preaches the gospel. You're preaching. Did you notice we put some tracks in your bulletin? We want you to take those. We want you to look at them. We want you to say, hey, you know, I, I can think of somebody who could use this. Or you're mailing out things. Say, I'll put a track in an envelope. And only do we put tracks in your bulletin. Out in the lobby, out in the resource room, we, we've got a table full of resources that we want you to take. And you can say, well, I can use this to preach. You can give a cassette tape with a message to somebody and say, here, I want you to listen to this. Tell me you think my preacher's crazy. Listen to this. That's preaching. You can share the gospel with somebody and preach to them in so many different ways. You can say, well, listen, I don't know if I can say, but I can bring them here and they'll hear the proclamation of the gospel. I can take them to somebody that I know who can talk to them. You're doing the work of preaching. 
See, my friends, you can proclaim. You might not be able to come up here and speak behind a pulpit. It may terrify you, the idea of speaking in front of other people. Well, that's fine. Most people are like that. But but you need to get the idea that preaching isn't what I'm doing right here, so to speak. It simply means to proclaim, and you can proclaim. God has put many people in your life that you can proclaim to that I can never reach. Never so he's given you that gift. And he says, you, you, you go out and you proclaim to them. I'll give you tools. I'll give you resources, but you must do it. The devil wants you to think that the reason why Christians don't proclaim as they should is because they're not eloquent. Is because they don't know, perhaps, enough about the Bible. They're not Bible experts. Well, you know, when I learn more about the Bible, then I can proclaim. When I'm better at this, then I can proclaim. And he wants you to think that it's a problem with your head or, or, or with your tongue. You're not eloquent enough. No, friends, let me be very honest with you, and I'm honest with myself, too. I, I look at this, and I see this in my own life. The problem isn't the head or the tongue. It's in the heart. We don't care as much as we should. We don't look at lost and perishing people around us and care the way that we should. It should really bug us that people are in misery and that Jesus Christ can touch their lives with hope and joy and forgiveness and restoration and they don't have it. It should bother us. We should wake up in the middle of the night wondering about people that we can bring this great message to. The problem isn't with the head. It isn't with the tongue. Truth be told, it's with our hearts. And so we come before God right now, don't you? You say, God, change my heart. Give me a heart for people who need Jesus. Make me care, Lord, because that's where it begins. We find a way to do the things we really care about, don't we? So that's the issue. Lord, make us care. Now, when you do, God will bless it. Take a look at it right here in verse 16. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, friends, that's a great guarantee. God says, when you proclaim this message to other people, and when they believe, they will be saved. Believe, be baptized, you're saved. Now, some people will raise the issue and say, oh, I guess salvation is only possible if a person is baptized. Baptism must be essential for salvation. No, if you take a careful look at what Jesus said in verse 16, notice it. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. He didn't say, he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. The essential thing for salvation is, is to believe, to put your trust on Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain what that means, because there's massive confusion about this, both in our culture as a whole and even in the church. When most people hear that, he who believes, what do they automatically think? They think, I believe in Jesus. I saw it in a movie. I mean, I read a book. Yes, there was a man named Jesus who lived and walked and he died on a cross, and I even believe that he rose from the dead. Great. I think, well, that means I'm saved. No, it's not knowing that these things happened as facts. It's putting a trust in them in your life. 
There are many things in our lives that we know as facts, but they have no impact on the way that we live. It's just trivial knowledge that we store away in our minds. You see it on quiz shows all the time, right? That very popular show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And they're always asking people questions, and usually they're the dumbest questions in the world, right? You see them when they're talking on the very low dollar uh, amounts, and you go, man, that's the dumbest thing in the world. Who wouldn't know that? And then when they get up to the high dollar amounts, the questions become hard. But most of it has to do with knowledge that has no practical consequence whatsoever. It's just a fact that you store away in your mind. Knowing that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, knowing that as a fact won't save you. You have to know it as a fact, and then you have to put your trust in it for your life. It has to be a truth that impacts your life. Okay, so you believe that Jesus did all these things. What difference does it make in your life? If it makes no difference in your life, then you're not trusting on it. This word that he uses here for belief, the ancient Greek word that he translates there actually means to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. Not just merely to believe that it happened. So friends, that's what we must do. We must believe in the fullness of what it means to believe. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, you just don't say, well, yes, I know it happened. You say, I trust in that. I rely on that. I cling to that. That is my salvation. I cannot save myself. But what he did on the cross paid the price for my salvation that I cannot pay myself. I trust in that, Jesus. I trust in you. When you see the empty tomb and the resurrected glory of Jesus, you don't file away in your mind saying, well, I know it happened. You say, no, I trust in that. It's his resurrection that gives me the hope of resurrection. And I know that I will rise again and live with him. You see the difference between a mere intellectual belief and a life-changing trust. That's what we're talking about here. Now, where does baptism come into play with this? Well, again, because Jesus made it clear in verse 16 where he says, and he who does not believe will be condemned, where he didn't say he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned, we can say that baptism is not essential for salvation. But at the same time, it would be terribly wrong to regard baptism as a non-essential. Friends, it may not be essential to salvation, but it is absolutely essential to obedience. Let me put it to you as simply as I can. Jesus told the believer to be baptized, so they must do it. It becomes essential as soon as Jesus commands us to do it. Charles Spurgeon discussed this issue in one sermon that he did on this text. And in his sermon, he sort of uh, spoke, so to speak, with somebody who said that baptism was non-essential. And I'll quote from his sermon right now. He says, what do you mean by non-essential? Well, I mean that you can be saved without being baptized. Will you dare to say that wicked sentence over again? Well, I mean to say that I can be saved without being baptized. You low creature, you say you will do nothing that Christ commands if you can be saved without doing it. You are hardly worth saving at all. 
A man who always wants to be paid for what he does, whose one idea of religion is that he will do what is essential to his own salvation. He only cares to save his own skin. And Christ may go where he likes. Clearly, you are no servant of his. You need to be saved from such a disreputable, miserable state of mind. And may the Lord save you. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said that. But I agree with the tenor of his remarks. If our attitude is to say, okay, tell me the bare minimum that I have to do to get into heaven. And don't tell me what I have to do to please Jesus after that. Just tell me the bare minimum I have to do to get to heaven, and I'll do that. Well, you see, that that doesn't show a right heart with God at all. The right heart with God says, yes, I believe on you, Jesus. Now tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. I'm your servant. You're my master. If you tell me to do it, it's enough that you tell me, and I will do it, Lord. So how about you? Are there some here who you believe? And I thank God that you believe. But you haven't been baptized. I can't think of a good reason for you not to be baptized, although the devil wants to fill your mind with good reasons. Many people keep away from baptism because they say, because I don't feel worthy. You will not find a word, a syllable in the Bible about waiting until you feel worthy to be baptized. When you do feel worthy to be baptized, then right after you're baptized, get on your knees and ask forgiveness for your pride. (laughs) Because you're not worthy for the gift of salvation that God gives you. Just receive it with gratitude. Then other people wait because they think, well, you know, it's like some spiritual thing. I have to be ready for it. You're ready for it when you believe. So friends, I... I'm convinced that there are undoubtedly people before me right now, you need to be baptized. So in our resource room right off the lobby, there's a, there's a sign-up list. And you put your name down. You write your name on that sheet that says baptism sign-up list. And you put your phone number there and we will call you. Because we want to talk to you and make sure that you believe. And then we would love to help you obey Jesus Christ. Because that's what he said to do. Let's move on here. Now, verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. So Jesus ascended up into heaven. Now, some of us go, oh, Jesus, why did you have to do that? Why not just stay on the earth? Why not just stay here? Wouldn't it be great? If Jesus were right here on this earth in his physical body, friends, he ascended up into heaven in a physical body. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in a physical body. Why not take that physical body and just live among us here on earth? Because it would make a mess of things if Jesus did that. Because we would have a superstitious trust in his physical presence instead of an ongoing reliance on the Holy Spirit's work. You see, think of what it would be like if Jesus was here in his physical body. Think of how difficult it would be to schedule him to come and speak at your church on a Sunday morning. (laughs) And so finally, after the waiting list of, you know, 23 years, Jesus comes to the church that morning. Oh, and wouldn't that be a great service? Oh, everybody would love it. It'd be the best. You couldn't do any better than that. 
Then think about how it would be next week when the same old pastor gets up into the pulpit. He would look at every face and they would say, Pastor, we love you, but this is a huge disappointment compared to last week. And think of how everybody would be superstitious. They would say, well, you know, it's just not worth it unless Jesus is preaching to us, unless Jesus is here. See, Jesus knew that he did not want us to have a superstitious trust in his physical presence. He said, you don't understand. It's my spiritual presence that makes the difference. So I am going to ascend into heaven to where you can't see my physical presence, but I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit upon the church so that my spiritual presence is everywhere. And through my spiritual presence, I can be everywhere. Everywhere at the same time, which is really much better than having his physical presence here. So Jesus said he would do that, and he did, and then he went out. Look at verse 20. They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Isn't it great? First of all, the disciples got to work. They said, well, we're going to go out and preach everywhere. We're going to do it. Now, there's a sense in which actually Mark is abbreviating a lot for us in the gospel here. Because in point of fact, it took the disciples a long time to obey the command to go out and preach the gospel everywhere. Do you know what finally got these 11 apostles to budge from Jerusalem? Persecution. They didn't say, okay, man, Jesus told us to go. So let's start figuring out now. Let's go. Just like us. Isn't it comforting to know that the disciples are just like us? I said, no, we like it here. Let's just stay here. And let's just, let's just enjoy the bless me club that the Lord has put us in. Oh, it's great. Oh, we love the fellowship. But Jesus said, you know, I gave you a command. I'm going to make sure it happens. And in their case, he allowed persecution to come in and he spread them out to get this message out, to get this gospel out. And they went out and they preached everywhere. And then look at it in verse 20, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. That is the great assurance that every one of us has when our hearts are in that place to say, I want to proclaim God's message to somebody else. You can trust that God will work with you. He will. He will bless you. And you will see miraculous things happen when you have a heart to deliver and to proclaim this message to other people. You saw what Jesus said here in verse 17. He said, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I could go into a big, long dissertation about snake handling and God preserving this person and that person and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Can I just boil it down to something that we can really grab a hold of this morning? When you have a heart to fulfill what God wants you to do in going out and proclaiming his message out, God will bless you. God will work with you. And might I be bold enough to say God will work with you miraculously. Miraculously. Now, the miracles are up to him. You can't give God a list of miracles and say, okay, I want you to do these in my life in the next week. No, be about your father's business. Do what he told you to do, and God's power and God's presence will be with you in a miraculous way. You can count on it. So this is the great promise that Jesus left his church with. And here they knew it. They knew it. So friends, let's let's just understand this and, and, and review this for ourselves. First of all, what what do you want to receive from God this morning? 
Why don't you receive from God the truth of the resurrected Jesus? There he is, right? You could be like the disciples and doubt it and believe it. Sort of stamp your foot and make God prove it to you, but don't. Receive from God the gift of the resurrected Jesus. Then, what do you want to give back to God? Well, I think, first of all, you can give back to God your faith and your trust in the Bible. We talked about that at the very beginning, didn't we? How we can trust our Bibles. And even when an unusual passage like this comes up that there's maybe a little more question than normal about, friends, it's so rare. Did you know that it's less than 1% of the New Testament text that's in any question at all by scholars? This is a very reliable document you have in front of you. You can trust it. But secondly, what do you want to give back to God? Well, friends, believe and be baptized. Is this your morning to believe on Jesus Christ? You can do it. You really can. There's a reason why God brought you here at this time and place. It's so that you could hear this. And you know what? Even if you don't want to hear my message, that's fine. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. You know God's speaking to your heart. You know God is speaking to you this morning saying, this is for you. This is what I brought you here for. You need to believe on me. And finally, what, what are we going to do for others? Well, we're going to go out and preach everywhere. Not just in here. Not to say, well, great, it's fine preaching inside of this room. Well, wonderful if it is. Friends, God wants to put things in your hands and use you to be a proclaimer. You can do it. God wants to fill your life with that thrilling adventure of touching other people with the love and the power of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together right now and ask the Lord to do that. Father, that's exactly what we pray for right now, that you would touch our lives with the heart and with the hope to reach others for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to have better minds to talk about Jesus. We want to have better tongues to talk about Jesus. But Lord, what we really need are changed hearts. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts as we draw close to you now. Help those who need to believe, to put their trust in you and receive the salvation that you won for them on the cross. But for the rest of us, Lord, those who already have, fill our hearts with a passionate desire to go out and be your proclaimers. In Jesus' name, amen.